Our scripture reading this morning, I trust you have a copy of the scriptures with you. I'm turning to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and reading from verse 8 to the end of verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and reading from the 8th verse. The Apostle writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. May the Lord bless this portion of his word to us this morning. Let us pray together. All praise to him, the God of light, who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies afar. All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. Our Father, we do come before you this day to bring you the praise of our lips. And we come, our Father, with that surety born from your word that though you reign on high, the creator God, the sustainer God, that you do hear the prayers of your people, that you hear the lisping sound of our voices, that you hear not the pious phrases, but the cry of true hearts. And we thank you that we can come to you just as we are through your Son, Christ Jesus, the one mediator between man and God, and that through his work, by your grace, we can come boldly to your throne to seek from you those things of which we are in need. And so receive our praise this morning, we pray of you. 
And do our Father hear the prayers that we offer to you? Forgive us our sins, for we have sinned against you, our Father, this week. Pardon our iniquities and wash us with that precious blood. Comfort those in our midst who are saddened this day, who grieve this day, whose hearts are full of sorrow. Heal those that are sick, those who need that healing touch upon their lives. And open our eyes that we may see Jesus. Grant to us that ministry of your spirit, that gift of illumination that as we would turn to your word, we would, we would see something more, something afresh, that our Father which would build us up in our most holy faith, that which would increase the love of our hearts for you and for one another and that which would give us great hope in this trying world. Come to us now, we ask of you, that we might hear that still small voice saying to us, this is the way, walk ye herein. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Going home, going home, I'm just going home, quiet-like, slip away, I'll be going home. It's not far, just close by, Jesus is the door, work all done, laid aside, Fear and grief no more. Friends are there waiting now. He is waiting too. See his smile. See his hand. He will lead me through. Going home, going home. I'll be going home. See the light. See the sun, I'm just going home. The words of William Arms Fisher and Ken Bible, and words that point us to the concluding words of the 23rd Psalm. For here in that sixth verse, as this Sam comes to a conclusion, and as we come to the end of this little series on this particular Sam, we see the desire and we read of the hope of every true believer. The 23rd Sam and the 6th verse, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What can we glean from these concluding words this morning? 
Well, let me point you to three aspects, three truths that we can see here. A delightful certainty, a divine commentary, and a dramatic continuity. A delightful certainty. Because here, as we read this psalm, we see a journey described to us. A journey that begins with the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. And then the journey finishes at verse 6, but still with the Lord, because I will go home to the house of the Lord. You see, this, this psalm relates the journey a sheep would take in a day. It's going out in the morning, and it's safe return home at night. And it also depicts the care and the courage and the compassion of the shepherd as he would guide his sheep, as he would guard his sheep, as he would provide for his sheep ensuring that they will all arrive home safe, sound, and satisfied. Now, some of you are of that age that you will remember that uh, during the Falklands War in 1982, BBC correspondent Brian Hanraham reported to visitors and to viewers I'm not allowed to say how many planes joined the raid, but I counted them all out, and I counted them all back. And my friends, that's the, the record, and that's the report of the 23rd Sam. The shepherd counted them all out, and he was able to count them all back. The testimony of the good shepherd recorded for us in John 17 and verse 12. I protected them. I kept them safe. None has been lost. And thus the truth of scripture that he will sustain us to the end. And so the, the Christian's delightful certainty are going out and are coming home again. But not only is there a journey described here, but we also read of the destination which is desired. We are brought back to the house of the Lord. In a word, home home. And what a lovely word that is. A word that surely conveys thoughts of warmth, of acceptance, of belonging, the source of happy memories and welcoming love. Home. That place where you long to be at the end of a long day at the office or the factory 
or school or university. You open the door and it's like another world. It's your world where you can relax and be yourself, surrounded by your loved ones. Home, a lovely word, a beautiful picture. And yet, sadly, this scene, this experience is not shared by all of us. Tragically, more than most of us know, Home is more like hell than heaven. You know, many, many years ago, I used to go up to what was then Tally Bible College, up just north of Newcastle in New South Wales every January. I, I was part of a team with a youth camp. Churches from my... Uh, the back blocks of New South Wales would gather together. In those days, we used to call them juvenile delinquents, youngsters that had trouble with the law. Gather them together and bring them out to the coast because the Bible Institute was right on the coast, just there near Port Stephens. And we'd uh, bring them to the coast, have, give them 10 days in a totally different environment with the Christian influence and Christian teaching. And I'll never forget on one occasion speaking to the young people about Jesus and Jesus longing to go home to the Father. And I couldn't help but see one young lad sneer. I talked to him afterwards. I said, I noted your response to Jesus going back home to the Father. And the young guy said to me, he said, I never took Jesus to be a fool, but what a not a fool he must have been. I said, what do you mean, fool? He said, going home to his father. You know, after this camp, I'm going home to my father. I'm going home to my alcoholic father. I'm going home to be beaten, to be spat upon, to be dealt with day by day with violence. That was home to this young man. He had no concept at all of love, of compassion, of understanding. How thankful we ought to be if home life has been happy and remains such to this day. Where love covers a multitude of sins and prodigals are loved and embraced and welcomed. And so how wonderful that this psalm closes with this desirable dwelling. We are going home. And it's to the home of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to a home where there is perfect peace and steadfast love. That at the end of life's little day, with its green pastures, its quiet waters, and its dark valleys, we are directed to this haven of delight, to this secure harbor, to this home of the beloved, for heaven, yes, to the new heavens and the new earth, 
Because you see, my friends, that's what Christianity is all about. The end of the story. Christianity has no purpose at all if we do not see the end of the story. For what was Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19? He said, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And therefore, if we are seeking and, and, and struggling and, and striving to live for Christ without the hope and the joy of living eternally with Christ, we are to be most pitied. It's insanity. And that's why the very goal of the message of the gospel is to bring lost sinners home to the Father. Home to participate in and celebrate in and be complete in the presence of our glorious God and Father. For how did Peter put it? Christ died to bring us to God. Thus God's grace will bring his people home to delight in his presence and his glory. And this is the Bible's delightful certainty. I counted them all out, says the shepherd, and I counted them all back safely home into the house of the Lord. A delightful certainty. But what can we say about this home? What can we say about this house? Well, here we come to the divine commentary. Because you see, the shepherd who leads us to the Father's house talked about the Father's house. There in John chapter 14, with the news of his departure, his exodus, Jesus' disciples were filled with, with fear and with anxiety. They were distressed. They were troubled. And so John 14 begins with those grace-giving, fear-dispelling, hope-inspiring words. Let not your heart be troubled. Why not? Well, look at the picture that Jesus draws. A picture of the Father's house. I'm reading John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house, you may be also. Now the question is frequently asked, what does it mean that there are many rooms in this house? 
The old Latin Bible used the word mansions, and that was the term, the word that was carried over. If you know your authorized version, your King James Version, it speaks of many, many mansions. And some of us are of that age, again, who remember that old uh, song that we used to sing together. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. It was a popular song some years back. But, you know, the most straightforward interpretation is to say it as rooms within the Father's house that point to the fact that there is enough room in the Father's house for all of his children. That's the picture Jesus is painting, the assurance that he is giving, that there will be enough room for everyone who has known the saving grace of our God, that no one will have to sleep rough in heaven. There's always room for the saved. There will be room for all the redeemed in the Father's house. That's the picture that's painted, the assurance that's given. And so we see not only the the picture drawn But we see here the promises that Jesus gives. Let me just draw out three of them for you. The first you get in verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. So that, that heaven is a palatial place, for there is room for all of God's people. But heaven is also a prepared place, prepared by the Son of God at the cross. Eternal glory was prepared for the Lord's people at Golgotha by God's grace. And so the first promise he gives to his children here is this. I go. I go to prepare a place for you. And then the second promise you get in verse 3. I will come again and take you to myself. The promise here is what? I come. I come. And this may have an immediate application. For in death, Jesus Christ comes to take us to himself. But it may have an ultimate application. That day when King Jesus comes in his great power and with great triumph. I'm turning in my Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, says Paul, encourage one another with these words. He says, I go. He says, I come. Then the third promise in verse 3, where... I am, you may be also. I go, I come, 
I am. Our Lord's presence, because it's his very person that makes heaven, heaven. For surely that was Paul's passion. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. This was his passion. This was his future. This was his hope. This was his longing to be with Christ. That's what he thought about the future. And I couldn't help but think how sad that so frequently our focus on the future is all taken up with argument and debate. Are you pre? Are you post? Are you a, an amillennialist? And we argue and dispute and debate these things when the Bible's focus is on heaven's beloved son. You take the very last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation. What's it about? Well, the first verse introduces us to the content of the book. It is the revelation. It is the disclosure of Jesus Christ. This last book, our attention is drawn to him who sits on the throne of heaven, the Lord high and lifted up, directing the unfolding destiny of man according to his own purpose and his pleasure and his praise. The last book of the Bible, my friends, is not a book for argumentation. It is a book filled with Glorious portraits of Christ and heavenly praise to Christ because he is the end of the journey. He makes heaven heaven. He makes it home. I am, for the Lord is all the day the glory of Emmanuel's land. The picture he paints, the promises he gives, but then don't miss the pledge Jesus makes. Because it's interesting to note how Jesus underlines the promises he makes here in John 14. In verse 1, he says, believe, believe in me. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, and he's saying to you and me this morning, beloved, he's saying to me, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth, believe in me. In verse 2, he said, if this was not true, I would have told you. I would have told you. And in verse 3, my grand purpose is to guarantee that you will be with me forever and my purpose will not fail. Believe me. Believe me, my friend. My promises will not fail. Assuring words for anxious hearts and what wondrous words for suffering saints. For Jesus points us to heaven and beyond, to the new heaven and the new earth. As David Lawrence put it, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Eternity, you see, is a physical 
and material element. That's why for 2,000 years, the great hope of the Christian church was not in heaven. We speak much of heaven. But historically, the great hope has not been heaven. It's been the new heavens and the new earth and a resurrection body, a physical place occupying space and time, and believers having a transformed body just like our Lord. This was the great hope. Heaven leading us on to the new heavens, the new earth, and death giving way to life, resurrection life, and having new bodies like unto our Lord's. And so we have a delightful certainty and this divine commentary. And so thirdly, a dramatic continuity. One has to be careful of sensationalism when trying to describe the eternal state and everlasting glory. But you know, Peter informs us that this, this earth will be subject to purifying fire. He says that in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. And out of that conflagration, a new universe is revealed. A new heaven and a new earth. But new, not another. New in the sense of quality rather than new in origin. My Cambodian friends would speak of things as being the same, yet different. And that's what we have here. This is the meaning of the word new there. It's the same, yet different. The same heavens and earth, but gloriously perfected, renewed, rejuvenated, so that there will be no longer any weeds and thorns and thistles. No Satan, no sin, no sickness, no separation. It's your earth, our earth, without the effects of the curse. My friends, our future is no less physical and material than it is as we know it now. That's why in Romans 8, Paul refers to creation being liberated, not being destroyed. For the triumph of Jesus over Satan must surely be in such a way that does not give him any sense of victory. You see, an annihilation of the physical universe may imply that Satan did in part triumph after all. So allow me a little liberty as I draw the psalm and the series and the sermon to a close today. Bear with me in my folly. I've often said to Christine that one day 
I would love to make one final trip home to Northern Ireland. Those of you that come from the old country, I'm sure often acquainted with talking about it still as home, even though we've lived here for years. But to go home and see again the Antrim Coast, Giant's Causeway, Carrickareed Rope Bridge, Newcastle, where the mountains of Mourne sweep down to the sea, to University Avenue in Belfast, where Christian and I lived and where our daughter Ruth spent her early months, despite the bombs and the bullets and the bloodshed. And I'm sure that there are places where each one of us here this morning would love to revisit a place that we may be still in our hearts call home. The place where you were born, where you grew up, places that are filled with memories of family, of people and events. Another country, maybe just another city, but some place you'd love to go back to. To return and see those, as I said, the green, green grass of home. Well, my dear friends, we may take that journey one day and see the coastline and the hills and the Alps and the plains and the rivers and the valleys and the countryside. But this time, they will be more beautiful, more magnificent, more breathtaking, more awe-inspiring than ever before. Because when we take that trip, we will see perfectly, for we will have new bodies, and it will be a new earth, and we see the perfect handiwork and artistry of our perfect, glorious creator, God and Father. The new, yet the same earth, but much more beautiful. The world the way it was meant to be. And so I close not with the words of a popular preacher or a great theologian, but I'm going to finish by quoting a storyteller, a master storyteller, whose words captured ever so wonderfully the dramatic continuity between the now and the then, between the present and the forever. I'm referring to C.S. Lewis's the last battle in the Narnia series, chapter 16, where Shadowlands gives way to reality. Listen as I read in the next moment or so, as we hear the characters talk among themselves as their story comes to an end. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the High King. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. 
Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have been a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that blue on those mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion? If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they'd rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. I don't think these ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy. But look there. She pointed southward to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy. The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like? cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre and his forked head, and there's the pass into Ochenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them. They look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more, oh, I, I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farside the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted onto the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we've all been blind. We're only beginning to see where we are. Up from there, I have seen it all. Ettensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the great river and Cairn Paraval shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace. And we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter. When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow of a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something of Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or a waking life is to a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped the right forehoof on the ground and eyed and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. 
This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England. It's the, the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the country where all our adventures began. But I thought the house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fool. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. Then Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts slept and a wild hope rose within. And so the story comes to its conclusion. There was a real accident, a railway accident, said Aslan slowly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And C.S. Lewis concludes the story this way. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What was he saying? What's the lesson? My dear Christian brother and sister, we may groan now, we may suffer now, we may be troubled now, encompassed about with increasing weakness and infirmity now. But I want you to know this this morning and never forget it. This is not our home. This is not the real world, my friend. The real world. The place where every day is more perfect than the one before.
awaits us. We we are only in the, the cover and title page of our life story. We are yet to write the great chapter of our life. We're just passing through into reality. The best is yet before us, where every chapter in our life is going to be better than the one before us. This life is just the title page of a book, just the cover. The story of our life, my friends, is going to be written in the Father's house for all of eternity. Where the Lamb is all the glory. Where fullness of joy is to be found in his presence. Where we shall dwell forevermore. Where we shall live in the Father's house. In this new world. In this new earth. With our new bodies. And never, never doubt it, my friend. We will live happily ever after. That will be the testimony of our life. That's where we're going. That's what awaits happily ever after. For I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, how amazing beyond comprehension. We're so much taken up with the here and now, with the concerns of this life, which is right and proper. But you would have us to be a people of hope, a people of joy, a people of great expectation, a people who know that that which is yet to be every chapter, every day, every hour, every moment will be better than that which went before. And so our Father, help us to lift up our eyes this morning Help us to look forward with eager expectation in awe of what you have yet fixed for us, a place in your presence where we will all live with you happily, perfectly happy forever and ever. Help us to take it in that we might Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen.